Well, again, I want to say good morning to you. Hope you had a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. want to encourage you now to grab your Bibles and let's go to Psalm 51 together. I don't know about you, but it's really, really hard for me to believe that Christmas is just about four weeks away. 2019 has seemed to fly by. So in the, the spirit of Black Friday and Christmas shopping and all of this, let me ask you a question. Have you ever struggled knowing what to buy somebody for Christmas? You know, as, as a parent, there are a lot of things that our children want. I mean, every time it seems that they're opening up a catalog right now, ooh, 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 I, I want this, and I want this, and I want this. But now they don't use the word want, do they? No, they use the word need. I need this. Now, uh, among a lot of other things, what that really shows us is uh, we are seldom good at knowing what we really need. Now, by the way, we as adults, we aren't much better, are we? I mean, let's just take, for example... The two most often gifted things around this time of year and into the end of the year. The, first, the top gift is an $800 clothes rack. You call it a treadmill. Or the second most gifted item at this time of year is a $400 Ultra HD distraction device called a TV. Now, this is the way that we justify this need. Well, I need to eat better. I need to exercise. Therefore, I need this $800 treadmill and this brand new TV. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to set the TV up in front of my, uh, the treadmill up in front of my new TV. And so when I'm watching my favorite movie or my favorite show, I can just be walking on my new treadmill. Now, that sounds great, right? But what truly happens? We hang our laundry up on our treadmill, and then we go sit down in front of our new TV, watching our favorite TV show, eating double-stuffed Oreos. Or whatever y'all eat. Right? That's what we do. Now, here's the thing. What do we really need? Well, we need to spend probably about $200. We need to get a good pair of, of walking shoes. I'm not going to say running shoes. Not going to go crazy. But a good pair of walking shoes. We need some, some pants, some shirts, and we need a good heavy jacket. After all, it is winter, and it kind of gets cold around here. And then we need to find a friend and go walk around the neighborhood with them. Why? Because that can get us out in God's creation and help us to glorify Him. But it can also help us strengthen or deepen relationships with other people. And this is what God has called us to do. But here's my question. If we struggle to know what we really need in our physical life, could there be some areas maybe in our spiritual life that we don't really understand what our biggest need is? This is what we're going to spend about the next seven weeks or so looking at. What does God want? What is, the title of this morning's message is this, Our Greatest Need. And Lord willing, we're going to spend two weeks dissecting Psalm 51. But here's the one big thing this morning. Our greatest need is not changed behavior. 
is to transform heart and life. Let's look at it together. Psalm 51. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and ask if you're able, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's word? He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And again, Lord God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Our greatest need has not changed behavior. It's a transformed heart and life. David identifies two things that we need in this text. The first one is this. We need to understand the nature of sin. Now, the reason that we need to understand the nature of sin is so that we will understand the seriousness of our sin. See, one thing that we have lost in our society is the ability to call things what they are. We have to be politically correct. I'm not having... I'm not committing adultery. I'm having an extramarital affair. I'm not throwing away my marriage. I'm just adding extra to it. I'm not committing murder. I'm making a choice. I'm not lying. I'm just stretching. See, what's happening is we have changed the words so that we can downplay the seriousness of our decisions. But David's going to do the exact opposite in this, and I think we really need to to look at this and understand it. Now, the three words that David is going to use in this text to help us see the seriousness uh, of our sin are really summed up in Romans 3.23 that says, For all of sin to come short of the glory of God. Now, that was Paul in the New Testament. So what are the words that David uses here in our text? Well, the first word he uses is the word transgression there in verse 1. A transgression is to consciously and willingly cross God's forbidden boundary. See, when David says in in verse 1, talking about blood transgressions, what he is ultimately saying is the decision that he made to commit adultery with Bathsheba and murder Uriah, they were conscious, willful choices. Now, before the prophet Nathan confronted him, David, like us, was lying to himself. Yeah, we're, we're really good at doing that, aren't we? We, we don't think it's that big of a deal. We, we say, well, you know, I wouldn't have done what I did but you. I wouldn't have said it if you. We're so good at deflecting the blame for what we did. Now again, this isn't anything new. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God comes to Adam, confronting him in his sin. And Adam doesn't go, you know what, Lord, you're exactly right, I see. What does he do? He deflects the blame. It's the woman that you gave me. So he comes over to, to Eve. What is this you have done? It, it, it's not my fault. It was the, the serpent. So the blame game is as old as time. 
But if we are going to understand what God wants, if we're going to understand our greatest need, we're going to have to look ourselves in the mirror and understand that the majority of the things that we do are not things that somebody made us do, but rather they are something I chose to do. You know, again, going back to Paul in the New Testament, Romans 3, the very end of verse 23, it says, and fall short of the glory of God. In the Greek, it's in the present tense, and it indicates that we are continuously falling short of the glory of God. It's not something that we did at one time. It's something that we are doing over and over. Through conscious choices, we are making. So the end of Romans 3.23 shows us this, that we are sinners by choice. So then jumping back to Psalm 51, the second word that David uses is found in verse 2, and it's the word iniquity. Now, iniquity means morally unclean. To be morally unclean means to be naturally attracted to what God says is wrong. And so David isn't just saying, I'm a sinner because of what I did. He is saying, I am born with this innate desire to do that which God has forbidden. By the way, have you ever, parents, have you ever given your kids a boundary of don't do this? Have you ever seen how hard they charge at that boundary? Why? Because they are caught in iniquity. It's this idea that not only am I a, not only do, am I a sinner by choice, but I'm really a sinner by birth. And we see that in what David writes in verse 5. Notice he says, Behold, I was shaped into iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David isn't saying that He's an illegitimate child or, or his birth. There was controversy surrounding it. Rather, what he is saying is because I was born naturally, I have a natural desire to rebel against God. By the way, every person ever born naturally has this same desire. The only person born unnaturally or supernaturally was which is why he was without sin. But Adam, as the first man, he is representative of all of mankind. And so what Adam did, what Adam chose to do, is what you and I also choose to do. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, Adam, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Ever since Adam's rebellion, every person born after him was born with this sin nature. This desire to do what God has forbidden. So we're not just sinners by choice, but we are also sinners by birth. A lot of people say, well, I'm a sinner because I sin. The Bible teaches something different. The Bible teaches that we sin because that's what sinners do. Sin isn't just something I do, it's who I am. At the very core of who I am is this person that wants to live and worship me, not God. 
And it causes us and leads us to do things that are act rebellion against God. And so then he paints the, the, the final part of the picture in verse 3. He uses the, the word sin. Now that's the word that we are used to. The, the picture of sin is that of an archer taking a bow, loading an arrow in, pulling it back and letting it go after aiming at a target. Now, when you and I think, well, well, you missed the target, we naturally think that you just missed the bullseye, right? All right, so you're not getting 10 points, you're in that next outer ring, so you get nine points. That's not the picture of sin that the Bible paints. Remember what it says in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does that mean? That means that you're pulling that string back. You're letting that arrow go, and you're not even hitting the target. It's not that you just missed the bullseye. You didn't even hit the target to begin with. This is what sin is. It is continuously falling short of that righteous standard. So what all of this means is that on our own, we do not possess the ability to please God. It is only by a relationship with God through Jesus that you and I can hit the target of God's holiness. Why? Because it it is God imputing or adding to our account Jesus' righteousness. Remember what he says in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, For he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. The only way you and I can hit the target of God's righteous standard is to have a relationship with Jesus. This is seriousness of our sin. This isn't just barely messing up. This is blowing it up. This is not even getting in the same arena with and David recognizes his, his, the nature of sin and the seriousness of it because of what he says in verses 1 and 2. David is going to cry out to God to do something bigger than he's ever done before. What is he, what is he asking? He's saying, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. See, the Old Testament sacrifice... The blood of the animal covered their sin. Swept it under the rug, so to speak. But David is going, my sin is so horrendous that God, I need you to do something bigger than just sweep it up under the rug. God, I need you to remove it. And it is in this way that David is pointing us to Jesus. Because the blood of Jesus Christ did not just cover our sin. It has removed our sin. And this is what David is asking. David is going, I am powerless to do anything about my condition. Because I I chose to sin because I was born with a sin nature. And I can't do anything about it, but God, you can. And this is David crying out in the brokenness of his sin. For God to do what only God could do. And I gotta wonder, when was the last time 
you or I got on our face before God and just cried out for him to do it all in When was the last time that we saw the seriousness of our sin and we cried out to God to do what only he can do? See, what David is asking in verse 2 is for what Jesus did on the cross. Because only the blood of Jesus Christ can remove our sins from us. Only the blood of Jesus can make us right with God. So not only do we see the need to see the nature of sin, but verse 4 tells us something else. We need to realize who our sin is against. Look at verse 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in my sight. David brings home a thought that I, I'm convinced that you and I seldom think about. You and I often think that we have a people problem. Again, well, if you wouldn't have said what you said, then I wouldn't have said what I said. If you wouldn't have treated me the way you treated me, then I wouldn't have treated you the way I did. We, we think we have a people problem. What David is revealing here in the text is we don't have a people problem. We have a God problem. See, our rebellion isn't against other people. Our rebellion is against God. Our sin affects other people, but it is a rejection of God. No one made David stay home instead of going to war. Nobody made David look on a sunbathing Bathsheba. Nobody made David lie and ultimately murder Uriah. I mean, on the surface, you could probably make the argument that David never set out to do any of this. I mean, after all, in the New Testament, he's called a man after God's own heart. So David, David didn't wake up one day and go, how can I ruin and wreck my life today? It just kind of happened, right? That's what we say, it just happened. How did it happen? We often think it's one big decision that we make that creates the problem, but it's not. It's the hundreds and the thousands of little decisions, the little compromises we make that lead to the big sins and the consequences. Got to watch, you know, like a lot of you, got to watch a lot of good football uh, this weekend. Uh, one of the best games of the weekend was the Iron Bowl, Auburn and Alabama. I don't know if you saw this game, but man, it was, it was great to watch. And it was coming down to the wire. Alabama had a chance to, to win. Auburn's got the ball. It's fourth and four. They've got a punt. Alabama's going to get one more chance. All of a sudden, official throws a flag. They were kind of looking around. What in the world just happened? They haven't even snapped the ball yet. What, what just happened? Alabama got flagged for having too many men on the field. Because in the confusion of what they were doing, they realized we didn't have the right players on the field. So they're trying to run some off and some on as the ball is getting snapped. Flag comes out. Illegal substitution. Alabama. Five-yard penalty. Now here's the thing. Normally, five yards wouldn't have been a big deal. But Auburn only needed four yards to get a first down. 
Alabama's out of timeouts. Alabama just gave up a five-yard penalty, and they ultimately lost the game. One small decision took away Alabama's chance at playing for a national championship this year. And in a much worse thing, one small decision that you and I make doesn't just affect this life, but it affects all of our things. That rejection of the gospel doesn't just mean we lose a game. It means we forfeit our soul for all of eternity. Do not believe the lie that one little compromise is no big deal. Because one little compromise, one little look the other way, one little bury your head will take you further from God than you ever intended and you will stay longer than you ever thought. If we look at the life of David, we see this. If you were to read 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 10, David is being blessed by God in incredible ways. Why? Because David is being obedient to God. From chapter 12 to chapter 23, that covers the rest of David's life. From 2 Samuel 12 to 23, David's life was never the same. He never experienced the fullness of the blessing and the glory of God again. He lost a child because of it. His family revolted against him. There was constant war and bloodshed in his family and in the nation. And and ultimately, through these decisions, it would ultimately cost the whole nation of Israel just a few generations later. One chapter came to define the end of David's life. Chapter 11. When he stayed home, Instead of going to war, when he looked on a beautiful woman, lusted after her, had committed adultery, and then ultimately had to cover it up by committing murder. One compromise did not change David's eternal standing with God. We are saved by grace. We cannot be lost at all. But one small compromise changed the rest of David's life. So every decision you and I make is a very big decision. Because while you and I are free to choose, we are not free from the consequences of that choice. So let me just ask you a question real quick. The choices you're making right now in your life, are they leading you closer to God or are they taking you further from God? See, the problem with David wasn't just what he did. The ultimate problem was who he was. Jesus would say in Matthew 15 that it is our heart that is defiled and what leads us to do what we do. So why is David crying out in verses 1 and 2 for, for God to, to blot out his transgressions and wash him and, and, and cleanse him? Because David knew the only way he could be right with God 
is for God to act. To do something that David himself couldn't do. And this is the point of the application. We must learn to cry out to God. Because our sin is an issue of our heart, only God can change the heart, then the only solution to our sin problem is the solution that God has provided in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the only solution we have. God's solution was sending Jesus as our substitute that we might receive the, the blessings and the promises given to Christ. And here's an incredible promise that God gives us if we do this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, what an incredible promise that if you and I agree with God, that's what it means to confess, if we agree with God that our sin is against Him and it's rebellion against Him, if we confess that, God, we are going the wrong way, and we turn from our sin, and in faith we're turning to Christ. He promises to not only forgive us, but to do exactly what David was asking, to cleanse us from all righteousness. This is the blessing that God is offering to you this morning. That if you will confess your sin and turn from it, he will forgive. So often people say, you know, you don't know what I've done. Maybe God used to love me. There's no way he does now. I've gone too far. Scripture would say something entirely different. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 where sin did abound, grace did abound much more. For you have not outsinned the grace of God. You have not gone too far from Him yet. There is still time for you to turn in faith and to receive the blessing that He is offering. But it starts with this. You have got to understand and admit you cannot fix the problem yourself. There's no amount of good works you can do. There's no uh, amount uh, of being a better person that is going to fix your problem. Because if being saved was all about trying harder, doing more good works, if being saved was all about what you and I could do, then Jesus died in vain. He died for nothing. The very fact that Jesus, that God himself left the glories of heaven, born of a virgin, to be born as a babe in Bethlehem, and ultimately die on a cross outside of the city of Jerusalem, is proof that you and I cannot fix our biggest problems. And we cannot meet our greatest need. But Jesus came. And Jesus will. But you have to come on Jesus' terms. Look, look at David's appeal for forgiveness wasn't based on who David was. Look at it there again. Verse 1 it says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. David isn't saying, I deserve to be forgiven. He's not saying, I'm a good enough guy. He is going, God, I'm asking you to forgive me because that's who you are. I'm asking you to give me grace. Give me mercy. Because you are the author of mercy. Grace. 
David is coming empty-handed as a beggar, saying, I have nothing to give you. Because even the good stuff I've done doesn't matter in light of all the sin. But you have what I need. God, I'm asking you to do what only you can do so that I can receive what I don't deserve. David is crying out to God based on who God is. He knows that the only reason God could ever forgive him is because who God is. What about you this morning? Have you come to that place in your life where you understand you can preach all the sermons you want, sing all the songs you want, get all the worship you want, read the Bible as much as possible, give everything you can, and it's still not going to matter. And come to a place where you understand that it is only by grace, through faith, I can be saved. If not, that's the invitation to you this morning. It's to turn from your sin and turn and behold the loving, glorious, merciful, gracious face of the Savior who died for you. And maybe you're here and you know you are right with God. You've been saved by His grace and you praise God for that. But maybe there's some stuff in your life, some compromises you're making. You're thinking it's not that big of a deal. The Holy Spirit using His Word this morning has shown me, you know what, it really is a big deal. I just need to lay that down. That's the invitation to you. Don't walk out of here carrying that sin. Lay it down. Receive God's forgiveness if you've never been forgiven or experience it afresh and anew by being reminded of who you are. Would you stand for me as we're going to pray? Fathers, we continue through this time of worship. We thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, I just pray right now, thanking you for the opportunity to stand before your people and to declare your word. Lord, I pray that it hasn't been about me, but it's been about you. Pray that I've been faithful to teach and to proclaim what your word says in such a way that it is clear to everyone here this morning that if they've never been forgiven, that you're extending that invitation to them right now. Father, you're also calling that saint who has gone wayward. You're calling them back to yourself through the confession of their sin. Lord, let us not run from you any longer. Instead, let us run to you and fall at your feet and worship you and praise you. Move in this time of invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing one more song together. The altar is open. You can pray. I'll pray with you. Let's just respond to the Lord and His Word together.